Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 98 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, host of the Virtual Couch podcast, which highly recommend the episode that I put out yesterday on the Virtual Couch. We're talking about how to gain emotional intelligence and how important that is. There's a really funny fact that I will probably bring over into an episode here on Waking Up to Narcissism soon, but there's some research that shows that 95% of people identify themselves as self-aware, but this particular social psychologist did, I think, a five-year research project and discovered that according to their metrics, only 10 to 15% of people are actually self-aware. Again, 95% of people say, I'm totally self-aware, except for when they're not. And I think that probably does apply more in this world of emotional immaturity or narcissism, but I digress. So go to the show notes and find the link tree in the show notes and please, or just go to TonyOverbay.com and sign up for my newsletter, putting out a lot of fun content with that. And you can also find out more about upcoming courses and programs. And my magnetic marriage course is about to relaunch. And I'm really excited about that. There's so much there. And I know I've said that on the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast, you might be in a challenging relationship and I'm not just trying to make a sales pitch, but I still go to the place where we don't know what we don't know. And so many people don't even know what what even a healthy relationship is supposed to look like. So I think there's a lot of value there in this course because I try to take it from the, of course, we don't know what we don't know. Let me let me help even show you what a healthy relationship would look like. And, and I mean, I'm going to shoot on you should look like. And I want your feedback. Please continue to send in emails. I get a lot of emails from this podcast in particular, and I just so appreciate them because I think they're coming from people that want to be heard and they want to be seen. And I do hear you and I see you and I read everything that is sent in and I just, I really appreciate it. So today's guest is, is a gentleman named Ryan Anderson, and he has a lot of letters behind his name. Very impressive ones too. He he has a PhD. He is also a LMFT like myself, and he has a, a MedFT, which I don't know that one. And he's director at Telos Neuro Health and the executive director at Telos Discovery Space Center. And he, the Space Center thing sounds amazing already, but I've been all over the, the Telos website and it's, a, it's very impressive. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. So Ryan has a bachelor's degree in marriage, family, and human development from Brigham Young University, and he got his PhD in medical family therapy, which was something we talk about in the interview. I wasn't even familiar that that was a degree from East Carolina University. He has 10 publications, including two books, and today we're going to talk about one of those books, and it's a very important book called The Choice to Leave Abuse. And just the topic that we're talking about today, abuse, is something that I just, I do not think we're talking enough about. There are so many parts of this interview that I want to just make clips and just put out there on their own. The first of which is one where I had Lori Finlay do an amazing job a few weeks ago talking about epigenetics. And Ryan has a lot of his background is also in studying epigenetics and the way that we store abuse and trauma and how that affects the, our, you know, our very genetic makeup. But he gives a lot of hope as Lori did on ways that you can overcome that. So I think that part alone is just incredible. And back to wanting your feedback, I would love your stories in particular about this issue because in my private women's Facebook group, somebody recently asked if their church or ecclesiastical leader had been supportive because she didn't feel like hers had, or if anybody had gone to their church leader for help in any way, and had it not gone well. And unfortunately, there were a lot of examples of leaders who I know are trying their best, but who completely invalidated somebody that I know it took a lot of courage for them to even go into their bishop or their priest or their pastor into their office to begin with. So then to be challenged on whether or not they were to be believed, or if they're hearing things like, do you know what this could do to your family? Or to be told that, well, your spouse doesn't really look like somebody that would do something like that. It only makes things worse, and, and it keeps a problem like this that needs to be addressed right now 
further in the shadows. And it reminds me, I still remember one of the first women that I ever worked with who told me about mental abuse, uh, sexual coercion, and spiritual abuse, as well as financial control that she was going through. And I eventually ended up meeting at some point with the husband, and he was nice for about 10 or 15 minutes. But when then he saw that I wasn't simply just going to validate him, then he got really aggressive. And I remember the button that he pushed that I just didn't even know where this reaction came from was when he was telling me that I would do the exact same thing that he does to my wife if she was like his wife. And this was over 15 years ago. And I didn't know this population like I do now. And sure enough, I reacted. I fully engaged with them. And I left that session so angry and frustrated, which I now know was exactly what he wanted. And I mentioned this because he went on to serve in some fairly high callings or positions in his church. And later I worked with a couple of people that had gone to him for ecclesiastical support. And, and it was kind of a mixed bag. If people were nice to him, he was nice to them. If you weren't, then he had a tendency to break you down and do it. What he said was in the name of God, which just killed me. Um, it really did. And, and I guess I also mentioned this as well as to say, I know, I, I know people are interacting with people in positions of authority who are not being helpful or supportive. And so if that is you, I can imagine that maybe you don't feel like there's anywhere you can go and that there isn't anyone you can talk to. And I, so I want you to really hear this interview with Ryan and I today, because we talk about that a lot. And Ryan is coming, let me just very upfront and transparent. Ryan's coming at this from a position as an active faithful member of the LDS or formerly known as Mormon Church or you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But this isn't about the the doctrine of the church per se, but it's more about an abuse of religious power and what abuse can do to the body. And also though, how you can find hope and how you can repair. And then if you are in any position of church leadership, I think this is going to be so beneficial because it's going to give information to uninformed church leaders for any and all faiths to know how to better support members of the congregation who come into your office needing help. It's okay to refer out. It's okay to say, I don't know, but let me find somebody who does. Because the bottom line, and Ryan talks about this in the interview, is the he has all the data to show that something like people who come in um, and they are alleging abuse, that in those situations, over 97% of them, I believe, was the number. It, the abuse is, turns out to be true. So if you are a church leader and you feel like you need to determine whether or not you think the woman or the man in front of you who is finally claiming struggles or challenges in the home and there's mention of any type of abuse and you feel like you need to be the one that will, I'll have the final say on that. Stop right there and get them help because I, I really do. I hope and I absolutely pray that you get to someday say that you had one of those one or two percent of people who it turned out maybe had inflated the narrative because of whatever the reason was, their own childhood wounding or that was the way that they, the only way they felt like they could be seen or understood. Because in reality, chances are you'll probably never have that happen. And if you do, then you can feel good about pointing that person to the right resources because you did everything that you could do. Let me get off the soapbox and let me just read off the Amazon description of Ryan's book. And then I'll just ease right into the interview um, with Ryan Anderson. And this episode is also on YouTube as well. So if you're interested in watching rather than only listening, please go there and subscribe and all that fun stuff. So from, so from the description off of Amazon, it says, God strongly condemns any form of abuse. In recent years, the struggles of Latter-day Saints and abusive relationships have made national headlines. The media attention has highlighted a deeply unfortunate perception. Many Latter-day Saints fear that by choosing to leave an abusive relationship, they're at risk of breaking their covenants with God. Mental health professionals and law enforcement officers who work with Latter-day Saint populations attest to the number of people who continue to be hurt, humiliated, and even killed because they believe it is their righteous obligation to endure abuse to the end. This damaging misperception and the traditions that have helped create and maintain it must be corrected. With a direct and straightforward discussion of the doctrines and the teachings about abuse, this book not only provides clear guidance for bishops and other local leaders on how to respond to abuse, but will also help you discover God's true feelings about abuse and the love he has for all who suffer. Learn to identify the signs of abuse in your own relationships and in others. Overcome roadblocks that may be hindering escape from an abusive situation and follow the path of healing in mind, body, and spirit. So with that said, if any of this resonates with you, then just please know you're not alone and reach out and find help, resources, whatever you can do. But that first step of raising your emotional baseline and starting to 
take more control of the situation that you're in is just from starting to become more informed. So I'm grateful you're here and I think you'll get a lot from this interview. So let me go now to my interview with Ryan Anderson. You were saying you're having a busy morning, but I don't think I can quite just feign laughter just to make it sound fun. Oh, if I could tell you some of the adventures I'd had this morning. Okay. Is it in the therapeutic world or are you just talking family? And Okay. All right. Yeah. Hey, so maybe start there. You are an LMFT and a PhD, right? Yeah, that's right. I got my master's degree from Brigham Young University, and then my PhD is actually in medical family therapy from East Carolina University. That's a crossover of working on mental health and physical health issues and the way they interact with each other. I did not know this was a thing, Ryan. So tell me more about this. What was that like? Oh, it was, it was really great. I think for me, kind of what got me interested in that is, is in my family growing up, there were a couple of significant medical issues as well. Uh-huh. And I saw, you know, that there were emotional issues that were connected with that and that there was this reciprocal relationship between the two. Mm. And so that was something that always interested in, interested me. And when I was finishing up my master's degree and thinking I might want to get a PhD, I found that East Carolina University had just offered the very first PhD okay. kind. Uh-huh. So I was actually part of the first graduating class in medical family therapy in the United States, possibly in the world. Although really? not sure, you know, if someone else jumped it somewhere else in the world and we just didn't see it. Um, but that's been kind of fascinating. And I've always loved to take a look and understand that really strong connection between the physical and the psychological. I work with a lot of people that have extreme emotional immaturity, bordering on narcissistic traits and tendencies. So this is the part where I, w- I was ready for you to first time it was ever that a course and you were top of the class, but, or was that the case? Well, I did get a 4.0. It's not, okay. So see, this is good. That's a healthy ego, right? The first yeah. graduating class. But I will say it. that my, my classmates were equally wonderful and accomplished and they've gone on to do some amazing things. So I kind of saw us as, as kind of rather than hierarchical, it yeah. was sort of Three Musketeers stepping across the line together. Okay. I like, that. I like that. I like that a lot. What classes were maybe significant in a medical PhD versus a PsyD? So one of the things that we did a lot of studying on were on medical health disparities. The okay. idea that, for example, women in general have worse medical outcomes than men. And it's not because there's something inherently diff- different about women, but it has to do with the way they interact with the healthcare system. Uh, minorities have worse healthcare outcomes than, than people who are in a majority population. And a lot of that has to do with not just individual psychology, but interpersonal and larger system pieces. And so a lot of what we were studying is as uh-huh. people have health problems and as they interface with the healthcare system, first of all, what are those differential aspects they're going to experience? How does that affect their outcomes? And what can we do to improve that experience? So there was a lot of, of study that we did on that with understanding how those things occur and how you can help to improve them. So what's a good example of something like that that you study or ran into? Yeah. So for example, if you are a woman with some, say you have pancreatic cancer and you live in the South, okay, you are, are more likely to have a healthcare a professional respond to you with, well, you're just hysterical, or this is just anxiety, uh-huh. or this is uh, okay. So that by the time you actually have your diagnosis of cancer and someone's doing something to try to help you, you are much more likely to be at stage four cancer than a man or than a woman, say, in Portland or in Washington uh-huh. State. Or also, similarly, there are different types of cancer that the specific cancer cells are fed by certain stress hormones inside the body. So for example, we found for several types of breast cancer, the quality of the relationship and the trust between a woman and her marital partner actually helped to increase survival. Whereas stress and lack of trust or betrayal actually shows an increased fatality rate amongst them. And so there are all these pieces where you see that there's so many ways that relationships and emotions are connected to actual health outcomes. And also, and this comes into some of the work that I'm doing on the idea of, of abuse systems, mm-hmm. 
way they understand people and the boxes that they put people in, who they favor and who yeah. they dis absolutely has a big impact on people's outcomes, which could be improved if we were to improve the systems. I, I love the book and it's the choice to leave abuse. And But boy, we just hit on something there, the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast. So many people there are in these emotionally immature relationships where they are continually trying to give their partner that aha moment, but really handing them buttons to push to then be the target of gaslighting to then feel uh, emotionally unstable. And then the cortisol is just flowing freely in the brain. And I just did an amygdala hijack episode recently where I was talking about that correlation with the hippocampus and short-term memory. And if things can't even make it there, then they're not going to make it into long-term memory. And that person is going to be in the spite or flight state. Is that kind of that work as well of figuring out how all that plays together? Absolutely. And wow. it even goes there. Okay. Um, I believe I believe in my book, I talk a little bit about the concept of epigenes and epigenetic. Yes. And this is rel- relatively new science where we recognize in our genes, every single one of us, we have the genes that are currently expressed and turned on. Mm-hmm. But we have a wide variety of other things that could be expressed. And epigenes are, you can sort of think them, think of them as like metagenes. They literally surround your genes. And there are different things that can happen that can activate your epigenes, which then change the way your genes are expressing, literally altering your genetic phenotype. Mm. Uh, and so one of the things that we've found, for example, women who are living in relationships with men who gaslight, men who have end affairs, men who abuse, not only does this have this emotional impact, but it goes all the way down to the epigenes and the genes. And what do we see? We see that they begin to alter and now they're having digestive issues. Yes. Now they're having yeah. pain. Now they're having chronic insomnia. And it's not just psychological. Literally, what's going on in the genes have changed. And so for me, this is one of the reasons that raising awareness of this is so important, is that abuse of any kind affects us all the way down to the very building blocks of who we are. Now, the good news is there's room for healing that can go down that deep as well. But we have to create the right circumstances for that to occur. This is so perfect. I had a, a somebody that just was starting to lay the groundwork about epigenetics a few weeks ago. And so I think where you're at with that, just it just continues to speak to this audience that that hear the podcast. And so I want to get into the specifics of your book too, but I often find that people start to hear this and are the very people that need to hear it because of the situations or that they've been in now hear these sort of things and start to be terrified. Do you, do you run into that? And how do you start to address it? Sure. I think a lot of people are worried that, okay, well, if what has happened to me has altered me down all the way to the genes, yeah. then I'm doomed, right? Yeah, That's right. It's like that. I have... I have been altered and I'm never going to heal. Yeah. And I can understand how people would, would feel that. But the good news is epigenes yeah. both ways. So for example, when you put yourself in a situation where you are genuinely safe, where there are trustworthy people around you, where you are actually valued and treasured, when you allow yourself to recognize that that is a possibility and you make the brave journey to get there, mm. then all of those things that could work on you to change your genes in a negative way and begin to change in a positive way as well. So the good news is it's, it's flexible. It's mm-hmm. malleable in both directions. So while it's scary, it's also a reason to have hope because no matter how much someone has hurt you, no matter how it has altered you, you remain malleable, plastic, able to change. Mm -hmm. If you are able to put yourself in a situation where that change is safe to make. Yeah. And so that's, that's the other side of the coin that I think is really important to recognize. I love that too. And, and forgive me for a, a trope I enjoy saying on my podcast, but I, we go from, we didn't know what we didn't know to now we know, but we don't do a lot about it. And I think that's a really scary place to be but it's part of the process. Then we go to, we do more than we don't. And then eventually we become. So that's where I like to say anybody that is hearing Ryan and I right now is on that path of healing, even if that feels overwhelming. So I love that anything that you're, you're saying right now and somebody's hearing it and it does feel scary and 
that you are a, a, a literal expert in this field that says, all right, that things can change, that neuroplasticity is real. Well, and I love what you're saying and, and I want to fully endorse it, saying, in fact, by allowing it to be a little bit at a time, that's mm-hmm. how open up the possibility of change. Oftentimes where we get stuck is when we think we've got to hit that final mark first. Yeah. And then, and all we experience is despair and disappointment. And we, we conclude, well, there was no healing for me. Instead of, you know what, I'm trying to go from completely miserable to only sort of almost completely miserable. And then yes. Forward from there. Yeah. And okay, now you're validating me, which I will now validate you. And it, I appreciate it. But I kind of make this joke, Ryan, that, that that's not a very sexy sales pitch. So it doesn't sell courses or books. I almost feel like, okay, I, am I the only one saying, yeah, it's going to take a little while or quite a while, but welcome to the path. And you are where you need to be. And when people say, how long is it going to take? Well, as long as it takes. And where should I be right now? Right where you are and all those sort of things. But it makes sense though, because it is going to take that long. Anything else is artificial, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else is selling somebody something that is, is illusory at best. Mm-hmm. You know, and especially I think it's important to recognize healing is also not entirely linear, right? Okay. You're going to walk about that. Forward, yeah. You're going to be feeling a whole lot better. And then you're going to run into something that catches you off guard. And you're going to feel like you lost so much ground. And you're going to say, oh no, does this mean that all of my growth was false? That none of this matters? The interesting thing is that trauma bakes at multiple speeds. Ooh, tell me, I got and like this. Okay. It gets buried on different levels. Mm. And, you know, some trauma can only kind of surface and show itself once you've been safe enough and you've healed okay. enough. Where it goes, okay, here's this other thing. How about that? Since we've gotten some progress on these other things. Um, and so there's this recognition of, okay, as I'm healing, I'm going to hit things that feel like they pushed me back or I didn't think that was going to bother me or it didn't bother me before, but it does now. Yeah. That's just this natural process of your body saying, the only reason I'm letting you feel this pain now, instead of completely numbing it out, is because I now believe there's a possibility of oh, heal. Okay, I like that. And so you've come far enough that I can now bring this piece up, some, some, some trust that this isn't going to kill us. This is actually going to be progressive. And so it's kind of that sign like, you know, when you have had severe burns and your nerves are all gone. And then as you start to heal, suddenly, oh, I can start to hurt here now or feel sore there now or all those kinds of things. It's the same process. So it doesn't mean that you're losing ground. Mm -hmm. It means your body is able to recognize I can now go there and still maintain integrity and hope. And this is a path forward. In fact, if anything, it's a good sign. Yeah. I love that. I do. Makes me think of a pretty pedestrian example, but I, I worked with recently where somebody just said, the only thing I want to do is be an artist. And if I only had all the tools to create art and then I would be happy. And the people in their circle were trying to tell them, well, but don't you want to do this instead or this or this? So finally, everybody, it seems like was on board. Okay, we're going to support this person. And then once they had the freedom to do that, then they got to that point and realized, you know, actually, this isn't really what I want to do. But they could never get there until they'd had that freedom to to then finally just be. So I like what you're saying about it's going to be a good thing to, it's hard to sell that part too, right? I guess that is, just wait. It might even get more interesting. I guess that's a positive spin. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the one thing we always recognize is, look, we, when people are struggling emotionally, what you notice is they tend to clamp down. And that their range of emotion gets really small. Maybe mm-hmm. they're depressed all the time, but they're kind of the same depressed all the time. Yeah. Maybe they're anxious all the time, right? Yeah. And so what's happened is the range has shrunk. Healing is your range growing and being able to experience a whole range of emotions and to go, yes, yes. for me to feel what I'm feeling. I can manage this. I can manage feeling really high. I can manage feeling really happy. I can manage feeling hopeful. I don't have to shut that down out of fear of disappointment. I can feel really lousy. Mm. I can feel really crappy. I can survive that. I can deal with that. I know that's going to end. And so that's how you know your mental health is improving is because your range expands. I love that. I had someone that not long ago, they found themselves in a position where they wanted to have the dance parties with their kids that they hadn't felt in a long time. 
So that was an amazing thing. But then what it also then led to was there were some lower lows. And, and so then we would have these, I, I thought these fun discussion, fun, these, these good discussions about are the high highs worth experiencing the lows? And then the person, once they really had the right tools, was able to then even work through the lows and see some growth there. So I, I really like that. But let's talk about your book because I feel like I could just talk to you in, in general for a book. long time. I know, right? Well, if you're okay, let me read the publisher description and I would love for you to then go wherever you want to go because I think we've set a nice base to work from. So um, it, it says, God strongly condemns any form of abuse. And in recent years, the struggles of Latter-day Saints and abusive relationships has made national headlines. The media attention has highlighted a deeply unfortunate perception. Many Latter-day Saints fear that by choosing to leave an abusive relationship, they're at risk of breaking their covenants with God, which I got to tell you, Ryan, I, I so appreciate that because I love the work I do, but it, boy, we have to work through some extra layers, I think, with that alone. And then you just say mental health professionals and law enforcement officers who work with Latter-day Saint populations attest to the number of people who continue to be hurt, humiliated, and even killed because they believe that it's their religious obligation to endure abuse to the end. So yeah, jump in anywhere you want there and tell me what led you to to write the book. And, and I, just, I so appreciate this working with this population. For me, what, what led me to this book was a combination of professional experiences, but also personal experiences with people okay. that, that I deeply care about and seeing them feel exactly what was just described. Mm-hmm. The idea that, look, I made covenants. My covenants are that I have to stick with this person and be loyal and, and, and they, you know, so many of them had, and, and I want to be clear about this when I say this, nothing I'm saying is intended to be critical of the church, but yeah. it's a recognition that people within the church are people mm-hmm. and subject to all the same misunderstandings, all the same prejudices, all the same human factors that any other human being is. Yeah. You know, so there were a lot of people who came from this and, and even had, unfortunately, bishops or leafside yeah. presidents, stake presidents tell them, yes, this is the case. Your, your job is to be with this person, stick with this person, let them do what they're doing and almost kind of asking them to be like a, a faux savior for this person. Yeah. It's like, like their your Latin job, life. This is your challenge, right? Yeah. Yep. Your job is to be crucified for their sins. Mm. Um, and you doing any less is you breaking your covenants. I've had people say, if you take the kids and walk away, then your ceiling with the children is broken and they remain yeah. sealed abuser, like all of these things. And if you happen to be LDS, if you believe this, if these are the most important beliefs you have in your life, there's no way mm. you're going to be willing to do anything change that situation no matter how much damage it's doing to you or to your children or whatever it may be and the interesting thing is when you dig into this you'll find that these kinds of stories and these kinds of narratives have existed among latter-day saints for many generations but when you really dig into what is the actual doctrine you realize none of this Mm -hmm. there even though people will, they'll bring up this quote from this person or that scripture from that person to support this idea. When you dig into it, none of it's there. And then for me, kind of the, the biggest impact was as President Nelson um, first became president of the church. It was so interesting to me. I said, okay, if you want to see the Lord's priority, let's take a look and see what is the very first official act that President Nelson takes. And what was it? The very first thing he did was he altered the church's approach and policies and protections specifically around abuse. Mm. Specific new policy written and published. There were releases made. And at the core of it was no one is expected to endure abuse. Yeah. We should not protect people who abuse nor should we ever tell someone who's being abused that they have to stay in an abusive relationship. That was the very first thing. Mm. that, And for me, that was kind of when I was looking at both what was going on in my personal life and what was going on professionally, when I saw that, I found myself having these conversations with people over and over again. And I said, you know, someone just needs to bring all of this together in one place. 
Gotcha. And, you know, I was like, oh, I guess I'm someone. Guess huh? <laughs> I could do this. And so I just kind of, I really didn't want to write another book. Like I knew how much work it was to write a book, but it just, I felt, I felt the draw that, that these ideas needed to all exist in one place at one time. And so that's what led to me deciding, okay, I'm actually going to write this. Yeah. Ryan, what do you think that, what do you, and I so appreciate that too. Uh, again, working with this population a lot myself, what do you feel like is the, your opinion on the origin story or the genesis of why it's so common then, uh, especially with LDS women? Oh boy, that is a good question. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to say some things. Again, I'm going to reiterate, none of this is intended to be yeah. critical of the church. I think one of the things I've learned, I'm going to speak from the spiritual side of things for a moment here. Okay. Anything that is sacred, like my learning through life has led me to believe that anything that is sacred and good, that Satan will try to create a counterfeit of. Mm. So that people who value that good thing have a decoy that can potentially lure them away. Mm. Um, you know, in, in our church, we value things like obedience and sacrifice. Um, we go on 18 to two year missions where we're expected to give up a lot of things and frankly, put up with a lot of garbage. <laughs> oh, doors slammed in your face. I had kids throw rocks at me. I had all kinds of nasty things happen to me. Mm. I was willing to do it because it was part of my commitment to the Savior, mm -hmm. uh, part of my commitment to the covenants that I made. And so when you can take all of those real pieces of discipleship and you can find a way to fashion that into a weapon that will crush souls and pass pain down from generation to generation, and if you happen to be Lucifer and that's what your priorities are, you're going to do it. Mm. Um, and so at some point in time, and I think this happened, you know, probably very early on, honestly, some of this was probably even carried even from before the church was founded. Mm -hmm. Cultures that people had, things that devalued women, things yeah. that saw them less than men, a culture of um, corporeal punishment. Um, all of these things have multiple streams that we're able to feed it. And as people came into the church, they don't just suddenly shed all of those right. things that come with them, right? Yeah. And this worked its way in. And so especially as, as you think about a, a church history where we talk about the sanctity of marriage and marriage supposed needs to last forever. Um, and also, I'm going to say something that might sound a little controversial. I think there are many places in the church where we've kind of had a fragility complex around Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't want to challenge men too much because they'll leave. But boy, you can hit the sisters over the head with a baseball bat. Mm, yeah. That's funny. Right. And we could talk all day about how that developed. Yeah. But I've seen that as I've gone different places in the world. There have been that kind of attitude of, you know, don't don't push the men too hard, but definitely push the women as far as they'll go. So I think there are a lot of things that kind of came together. And I think there was kind of this fear of, well, what, you know, what would happen if literally every man who's being abusive to his wife, what would happen in the church if the wife chose to leave? Mm. How many divorces would happen? What does that do to, okay, well, especially when you think about old policies, well, for the, it used to be that for the first year after a divorce, you lost your temple. Mm. It used to be that if you were divorced, there were callings you could never have. Yeah. Um, and so there's this idea that, boy, if this were to happen, it feels like it would kind of be apocalyptic. And one of the things we've learned is a lot of those old policies have changed, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of reasons why they have changed. But there's this idea of like, who are we really serving when we cover up a person's abuse towards another person? Are we solving anything? And, and I was going to say, and absolutely not. And I appreciate your take on that too. And I've done a, a couple of leading saints podcasts about emotional immaturity and narcissism in church leadership and with not trying to poke the bear, so to speak, but just kind of bring an awareness around what that can look like, the especially emotionally immature behaviors and leadership, because it really can be very impulsive and it can be controlling. And then I often... Yeah. Yeah, right. And I find that a lot of a lot of the men I work with, because I also work with a lot of people that are struggling with uh, turning to unhealthy coping mechanisms and addiction. 
And I think when there's a, hey, here's a right way, then, then it's assumed that then everything else is the wrong way. So then if somebody is just being human or being and doing, and they feel like, well, I'm doing the wrong thing, it's almost like they have to then go bigger on the things they feel like they can control. And often, unfortunately, I see that 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 can end up looking like control over wife and kids. And then, yeah, that's really difficult, though. And I I appreciate that you bring that up. You know, one of the things I speak about fairly extensively in the book is the idea of of spiritual abuse, right? You learn about sexual, you know, emotional. But there's this idea that, you know, again, Satan tries to take anything good and use it. Mm -hmm. And... To, as, as a weapon. And, you know, especially when you read Doctrine and Covenants section 121, there's some very clear doctrinal wording in there about it is in the nature of, we've learned through sad experience that it is the nature of most men when they receive cell authority as they suppose, mm-hmm. they immediately begin and, to exercise unrighteous dominion. Yeah. And, you know, what does that mean, right? That can be things like, you know, I've, I've had, uh, and again, never intending to be critical of the church, but understanding human nature. I've had bishops come and tell people, look, you have to accept this job and turn this job down. That's not within a bishop's stewardship. Oh, I'm glad you're saying that. Yeah, I've seen some people make some. And again, I I, I go with my first pillar of a connected conversation is assuming good intentions of what somebody's doing or there's a reason why. And part of that reason could be because if, if they lacked any control in their life or they have this opportunity for the first time to be in this position of power and get the validation. I, I was in a bishopric once and, and the bishop joked about all of his jokes were a bit funnier when he was in that position. And, oh, absolutely. you know, right. And everybody would smile at him. And I think that really can get to get to someone that can be difficult. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I remember um, Elder Uchtdorf told a story about that. Uh, I think I can't remember who he said told him this, but it's relatively early in his time as a, an apostle where he was told there's a lot of people who are going to say a lot of wonderful things to you. Yeah. Don't let it go to your head. But there is there's there's a. There's a seductive aspect of that. Mm-hmm. Right? This that maybe it's about me, but the, your church calling is never about you. A priesthood position you hold, it's never about you. But it's very easy. There's this this sort of gravitic motion of saying maybe this is about me, right? Yeah. And and this is the difficult part is you know there are so many ways where if, if someone who's in a position of authority, so it's a bishop, it's a stake president. Or even it's, you know, I know a lot of people who still cling to the idea of family patriarchs, right? The mm-hmm. grandfather yeah. is the patriarch of the family, and therefore he receives revelation for everyone. And what yeah. he says goes. And even if you feel like you've got different revelation, guess what? Yours is wrong and his is right. Exactly. But that's completely non-doctrinal. Yes. And it's completely inappropriate. But for a lot of families, especially ones who've been in the church for a long time, that became a part of the tradition. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that I have to go along with that. And I've seen that be so tremendously destructive. So there's that, there's that awareness of being aware of what the, the priesthood line and the personal line actually look like. Mm-hmm. Understanding what revelation looks like coming through both of those, the relationship between the two. And so often that gets misused. Yeah. Sometimes it's intentional. Yeah. Sometimes completely unintentional and the person just acting out what they've seen, what they've known, you know, the way we all do with family dynamics, right? Yeah. My my dad yelled at me when he was upset at me as a kid. I find myself yelling at my kid. At no point in time did my dad sit down and say, so when your child misbehaves, yell at them. I'm just right, right. producing what I experienced. And so I believe in so much of this, there's not intentional malice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's things that have insidiously worked their way in that if we understand them, we can reclaim these things for what they really should to allow to absolutely understand that priesthood line and work with it. And it can be a blessing to us. And that personal line and work with it and let that be a blessing to us. But never, one thing I've learned is as LDS people, we believe in revelation. But revelation, claiming revelation is not a trump card to stop thinking. Oh, amen. Yeah. Right. It's not a card to say, hey, look, I said I had a revelation, and therefore now you you must do what I say. It's the equivalent of the Jedi mind trick. You know, I have a revelation, and therefore you yeah. do this. Yeah. That's not how that works. If they had a revelation that impacts them, you have a right to receive that same revelation. And at no point in time does someone's claim of revelation 
obligates you to act in a certain way. Even, even coming down from the general authorities, they themselves will say, here's the revelation. Please seek your own confirmation, right? Well, what I think is funny about that, and Ryan, what I appreciate about that is I've been writing a fair amount about the differentiation, even from a person in authority, a leader, because it, and because there's been a lot of that in coming into my office. I work a lot with people working through faith journey, faith transition, and and it is okay when somebody says something and then it brings up the feelings in you. They are your feelings, your opportunity to self confront and grow. And so then I feel like everything becomes this, in essence, a muse to then help you understand. Well, what does that mean to me uh, versus yeah. the, I guess now I have to. And that's a really hard concept for people that have just, like we were saying earlier, which I appreciate, have this value of, of obedience and they're a rule follower. I think I, I find so many people that that's how they identify themselves. And that's yeah. a really, that's a hard population to say, it's okay you to, to really say, how do I feel about this and why? You know, and one of the things I've learned is, is, Kind of helping people say, well, let's let's take a look at that value and go deeper, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Is it just simply obedience? Is that what the actual value is? Or is it obedience to something that you know comes from God? Mm. Well, two very different things, aren't they? Yeah. Right? When, absolutely. I would endorse saying like, hey, look, when you know something comes from God, obedience is clearly, clearly an important thing to value. But there are so many things that are going to portray themselves as having come from God. Mm-hmm. Or so many things where just because you've learned to obey that and just because someone was right in giving you counsel A doesn't mean they're right about everything. Yeah. You know, the the church does not have a doctrine of infallibility. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think we act as if it does. We don't pretend that everything any bishop has ever said, anything every prophet has ever said has always been a hundred percent perfect in fact you know you read in the doctrine and covenants how many times do you have heavenly father chastising joseph smith for messing up Mm -hmm. it's all over the place right and so there's this awareness of everyone is growing yes everyone moving you know and again we, we we need to be careful not to steady the ark and go in and say i know this must be a place where he's making a mistake right but there's this piece of saying look for me, if I'm having emotional reactions to things, that's okay. Yes. I can't ask questions. In fact, that's how this whole thing started with Joseph Smith, asking questions. Mm. And questions are not threat. If I can be open and honest with my question, it will eventually lead me to where I need to go. It's when I shut it down. It's when I shut it off that I'm going to get stuck. Yeah. I like that. I, I feel like so many people are almost asking, they, and I don't know if you run into this in your office, but people with the narrative of, I know I shouldn't feel this way, or I know it's probably not right for me to ask this. And, and I, you know, that I think shows the depth of the wound of not feeling like it's okay to have thought and emotion. And I really believe uh, it's, it, we do a, a disservice of even the best of parent when a kid is trying to externalize their emotion. I feel this way. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Even a good parent is saying, hey, it's okay. Like they didn't mean that or it's not a big deal or, or uh, don't worry about it. And so then over time, it goes back to that. Well, then my, my emotions must be wrong because it seems like they aren't right. So then I will internalize those. And I really feel like that's that, that genesis of what's wrong with me. Why I am, I am broken story. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in that ability to say, one, your emotions are what they are. Yep. Two, emotions are also just one source of information for you. Mm. And when you, when you learn to take them and recognize all of my emotions are real yeah, and based on my ability to perceive, and my ability to perceive is subjective, that doesn't mean my emotions are wrong. My emotions make sense with my current level of perception. Now, my level of perception may change. My level yeah. of emotional maturity may change. Yes. I may have other experiences which add to my ability to interpret what's going on, and that's okay. I think where we run into real trouble uh-huh. is where we feel that we have to pretend to have an emotion. Yeah. Manufacture that emotion because we tell ourselves the emotion we're having is not okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, for example, we value faith. And so I think that makes us afraid of doubt. Mm-hmm. But is, isn't doubt and questioning the first step towards faith and answers? Mm-hmm. Right. So doubt doesn't have to be this terrifying thing. 
uncertainty doesn't have to be this terrifying thing. But unfortunately, when we talk about spiritual abuse, those are things that someone who's practicing spiritual abuse will latch on to. Yeah. They will use that to generate guilt and shame and the sense of being less than. Yes. And therefore, as a result of that, you can use that as the ring in the bull's nose to pull someone around to all kinds of things or to excite people to uh, a zealotness uh, where they're doing something which is actually morally wrong, but in the moment they think they're doing it. Like I think of when I read the accounts of what happened in the Mountain Meadows Massacre, mm-hmm. right? There were people in different places, but absolutely for at least some of those people, it was, it was spiritual abuse. Someone yeah. in a position of authority telling them that this was their spiritual obligation yeah. to do that once they were distant from it, they went, holy cow, that's terrible. And I can't believe I did that. Um, and there's all kinds of things where you know spiritual abuse can be used to make someone choose to have a child rather than making that choice at their own pace. Mm-hmm. If you to have someone you know, stop sharing their thoughts in church, it can be all kinds of things. And I, I think for mm-hmm. LDS people, it's particularly insidious because it's really hard to say, wait, someone, I can recognize that someone is using spirituality wrong and still hold on to my testimony. Mm-hmm. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Right. Because so often, you know, I do see people struggle with this. This person in the church used their position of authority to abuse or control. Therefore, that means the whole church is broken. Right. And it's easy to draw that conclusion. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're afraid to confront it sometimes. But I also can say, both through my own experiences and with enough other people, it's like, look, when we can see things in a broader range, it's of course we expect in the church that people in positions of authority will sometimes be tempted and mm-hmm. will some fall to temptation to use that authority incorrectly. Now, of course, one thing we know is that the moment you try to use authority incorrectly, the priesthood power of it is gone. You can't actually abuse the priesthood. You can abuse the name of the priesthood, but not the power of the priesthood itself. And it would only make sense like, you know, that that will happen. We need to be aware of it. And again, that recognition of what do we do when that's the case? How do we help ourselves, give ourselves permission to not be manipulated while still... Keeping our covenants. Are you familiar with that concept of a uh, whole object relations or object constancy? Yeah. Um, okay, right. And I think that in this context of being able to see the object in its entirety, and I can like this, and I can be frustrated about this other thing, and I can want more of a certain thing, and I can want less of another thing, that it doesn't have to be that all or nothing or black or white mentality. Yeah. Uh, and so I like what you're saying. When a, a human is being a human, which they'll do, because if they are pretending to be perfect, that's a problem right there in and of itself. Um, Absolutely. But, but then there is my opportunity to self-confront and grow. Of I, I do like this. What do I like about this? I don't like this. And what is that bringing up for me? And what, what can I learn from that? And, and I think that can be a really powerful thing where uh, it's a lot easier to, to say it's all bad or it's all good or that person is all bad. But then acknowledging too, though, where you're, what, what I love about your book and, and a lot of the population I work with, though, is that when somebody won't take ownership of any of, of anything for or apologize or you know they're unwilling to sit with any discomfort it wasn't them it had to be you uh, and they do confabulate the narrative and and the story does continually change then that in of itself is is data to work with that for yeah. the person absolutely you know and and uh, just cognizant of time there are yeah. a couple okay. of so so one um this is an important point I'd want anyone to know. I know that right now there's this concern of, well, what do we do if, if someone reports that they're being abused? Mm. A lot of people feel like that's such a risky situation. Well, what if, what if, what if they're wrong? What if they're mistaken? What if they're lying? You know, and I think for me, it's so important to recognize that when you take a look at the actual research, a teeny tiny portion, less than 4% of all cases of reported abuse turn out to be false or unfounded. Okay. So what it means mm. is that it, you can rest assured that with almost absolute certainty, by the time someone's coming to you and claiming abuse, 
your response, the response that even the new policies of the church say is our response should be to believe the person. Okay. Not, not to question them, not to say like, is it as bad as you think? Or, you know, mm. like, it's like, look, the way this plays out that, it, you know, the vast majority of the time, it is going to be exactly what they say it is. And honestly, probably worse than this. Yes. And so our first action should always be to believe them, to take actions to help them make sure that they're safe and to connect them with resources that will help them explore what their options are. And what you will find is that one of the reasons so many people stay in abusive relationships and even die in them is because when they report, that's what they get is a whole but Yes. You know, because the, you know, everyone's like, well, the person doesn't seem like an abuser. Well, what is, what does an abuser seem like publicly? Yeah. Do they have fangs and purple skin yeah. and red eyes? Like, the, the most common profile of an abuser is the sort of person you never think would be an abuser. Of course. That's common profile. And, you know, since abuse is about power and control, one of the things they're the best at controlling is their public face. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they can seem amazing. They can seem like the nicest person around. They've held all these specific callings. And people go like, well, those are all reasons to doubt this story. I'm like, no, actually, that's what you would expect to see when the story's real. Right, right. What I appreciate you saying is the, uh, I was just talking to a client before we jumped on and we were talking about this very thing where I wish a leader, even if they had to have a, a sheet to read off of that the, the answer or the things you respond back with are, tell me more and thank you for coming in. And that must be hard. And what can I do to help? And I feel like that is where the, I know it gets said off the, the judge in Israel or, well, I'll be the judge of your situation. And and that's where I'm say that that's not the role. That's not what. Well, that yeah, is. absolutely. And let's speak to that. You know, yeah. bishop bishops have such a hard calling. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize what the calling is and what the calling isn't. You know, the way I talk about it, as as a bishop, if someone in your congregation came to you and said, "I think I might have cancer," you wouldn't say, "Okay, so what I'm going to yeah, yeah. do is I'm go pray about it and see if I get a revelation that says if you have cancer." Because you and don't then, look like you have cancer, right? Yeah. No, say you don't look like you have it. And if it turns out you do have cancer, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Heavenly Father to inspire me with the formula for a chemotherapy medicine. Mm. And I'm going to ask to inspire me and give me the knowledge of how to perform surgery and how to make a radiation chamber for you. You wouldn't do that. If no. you're a bishop, someone comes to you and says, I think I have cancer, you'd say, let's get you to the doctors, the people who are trained to do this. Yes. Let's find out if you have cancer, and if so, let's get you treatment. Yes. Abuse is no different. Understanding, well, working with, healing from abuse is as complicated a system as getting treated for cancer. Heavenly Father does not expect a bishop to have to receive all of that and be the everything to that person. The bishop's job is to believe, yes, protect, and then to connect them with the people that Heavenly Father has brought up with yes. those skills, with those abilities to take care of that peace the same way as if someone came to you with cancer. It's the same thing. It's no different. And so that, once you recognize that, first of all, it takes an unnecessary pressure off the bishop. Yes. And it allows the bishop to know what can I actually do to be effective. And of course, the bishop is going to be worried about the person who's accused of abuse. We should be. Mm. They're, not our, they're not our first priority. The first priority is the safety of the other people. The other thing to keep in mind is abusers don't stop on their own. Yeah. They need someone to stop them. If you're genuinely concerned about their abuser, this is what they need. They need someone to stop them and to help them begin the process of changing and turning things around. You're not doing any favors to them by allowing them to continue to abuse. Yeah. So there's this recognition of this is literally the kindest, most loving thing I can do for this person. This isn't vengeance. This isn't punishment. Mm. It's literally helping them to change off a course that, again, what do the scriptures say about people who abuse? It's better that they should have a millstone hull about their neck. Yeah. You know, we'd rather help you not have that be the way this is handled for you. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's you change. Well, so I, that's 
your future. Well, and I appreciate so much that message to the bishop, to the stake president, to the leader, because I know you work with this population as well. So I get to talk to a lot of different people that are with a lot of different bishops. And you do from our chair, you get to see somebody that says, I don't know, let me refer you out immediately. I'm not a marriage therapist or, or what, whatever that looks like to the person that says, I'm working with a couple of situations right now where the person just, uh, they, I think that's where they see this as this is my opportunity to have power and control. And I'm not even saying in a nefarious way where they're twirling their handlebar mustache, but it, it is intoxicating. And they do, I mean, I think they, they do want to be able to say I was right, but that's making it about them. And I like what you're saying. It's not a them issue. They're, they are there to provide a safety uh, and a conduit to get real help. Yeah. And that yeah. honestly, that Anytime you're any, in any kind of church leadership position, that's always your first red flag to yourself. The moment you think, this is about me accomplishing the thing. Yes. Me being faithful. And it's usually, again, well-intentioned. This is me being faithful. This is me serving Heavenly Father. But yeah. when you realize, wait a second, it's never about me. Yeah. It's never about me. Yeah. Those, that's kind of the hook that, that Satan uses to get us to do things that we really shouldn't do. Yeah. Ryan, where can we find you? I love the book. I bought it. I want to say it's a, a wonderful read. It's a difficult read in the sense that I love that you hit things right out of the gate, which is really good. Uh, and I think it's, it, it's absolutely something that I think every, I don't know, think every, this is one of those where, and I get no financial incentive, of course, from you, but I feel like this is one where it would be nice to have this on a bookshelf that you can hand to somebody. I think that's what I really appreciate about it. Yeah, I yeah. agree. For me, this is one where I'm like, I never tell people it's a good read. Right. Um, I tell people it's an important read. It really is. And I think it's one that needs to be handed out to somebody that maybe is in a situation like that. Because again, I know that you know this so well, but when I start to even try to validate somebody who is in an abusive situation, it is so quickly followed by, but you know what though? He does a lot of good too, which is that intermittent reinforcement and welcome to a trauma bond. And I think that that's, you know, I'm grateful that that person's on that path, but oh, I would like to speed that up even if it's 10, 20%, which I know is a me issue, but I feel like that's a relatively good me issue. Well, yeah, understandably. And I think there's that awareness of, it's kind of like, hey, it's a really great chocolate cake, except for the cow pie they put on oh, top. absolutely. Right? Yeah. There's this aspect of, there are certain things which are qualitative changers. Yeah. Abuse is a qualitative changer. Yeah. There is no amount of good we can do to excuse no. our abuse. No. The only, only response, the only thing that excuses abuse is repentance and change and the Savior's atonement. Yeah. That is the like only that. that excuses it. There's there's no amount of penance you can pay to make it okay to keep abusing. Yeah. So. And that that's kind of like maybe the last point, being kind of aware of the amount of time. I yeah. chose it all really carefully, the choice to leave abuse. Mm. Oh, okay. It, it is a choice that you have. No one is saying, you know, just as a bishop should never tell someone, you're in an abusive relationship, you have to stay. It's also not the bishop's choice to tell you, you have to go. Mm -hmm. And help you understand that's a choice that you can make. Yeah. That it's something that's available to you. And that the church should be fully supportive of you to help you make that choice. If you determine that's the choice you need to make. Yeah is available to you. It is a righteous choice if you choose it. There's not a certain level of abuse where the abuse has to be this bad for mm. you to choice. And if it's only kind of mild to medium and not picante, you can't make that choice. It's, no. no. Again, abuse is a qualitative changer. Once abuse enters a relationship, you do have the choice to leave that relationship without violating your covenants because the abuse violated the covenant. Oh, well said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And at any point in time, if you feel that would be better for you. Now, of course, there's a, what would I do if I left? There's all those scary pieces. Sure. And that's a whole other conversation. And usually what I find is there's a lot more ways to work out those scary pieces than any of us imagine. Absolutely. The whole idea is that if, if you are feeling like this is something you might want to have, a choice you might want to make, what I want people to know is by the time you're wondering, absolutely it's a choice that if you were to make it, God would endorse. Absolutely. And what he asked those of us in the church and those of us who are professionals, 
He asks for us to help remove the obstacles that are in place for you making that choice if you choose to make it. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. Well said. Ryan, I I really appreciate your time today. And I would love to have you back on and talk about those next steps and some of that as well. I would love to. Okay. No, and I'll have all the links to where where we can find you in the show notes, where where's an easy website for somebody that's just listening and where can they find you? So two easy ways to find me. Um, I do have a Facebook page. It's just Ways to Leave Abuse. Um, I tend to post things there. It's also a good way to contact me. Um, And then also, if you're looking, probably the easiest place to to buy my book is on uh, Amazon. Perfect. Okay. All right. The, The Choice to Leave Abuse, Ryan Anderson. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Much appreciated. Okay. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.